from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. Today, coming to you from basically all across Western Europe. I am Camino Morteran Martinez. I'm head of the CER's Brussels office, and I'm talking to you today from a remote French village. So that thing you hear is indeed a cow mooing in French. But let's go to Brussels. In Brussels, everybody's talking and thinking about enlargement. EU capitals seem on board, including previously unenthusiastic ones like Paris, Berlin, and Madrid. Most governments and the EU institutions believe that enlargement cannot happen before the European Union reforms the way it functions. Is the momentum behind enlargement real? Are governments sincere when they say they want enlargement? How many countries may be joining the European Union in coming years and when? And what do we talk about when we talk about reform? So to help me entangle these and other related questions, I've called two of Europe's leading experts on both enlargement and reform to join me on the podcast today. Charles Grant, Director of the Centre for European Reform, joins us from London. Hi, Charles. Hi, Camino. And in Brussels, Heather Gravy, non-resident fellow at the economic think tank Bruegel and advisor to the president of the Open Society Foundations. Hi, Heather. Good morning. Okay, let me start with an easy one. Will the European Union enlarge? And if so, when and to where? Who wants to start, Charles? Okay, well, I think that momentum is building up for a big round of enlargement, rather like the round we saw in 2004, which Heather worked on when she worked for the European Commission. I think the war in Ukraine means that for geopolitical reasons, a lot of governments feel they need to bring in Ukraine and Moldova to kind of bring them into our family and protect them from falling into Russia's sphere of influence. And I think Georgia could obviously join if it becomes more democratic than it is today. So that's three countries in the east of Europe. But at the same time, there's a general feeling that the Western Balkans has been left out in the cold for too long. They were promised accession to the EU 20 years ago. Nothing much has happened since then. Some fault lies with the EU for not expressing a greater wish to bring them in and not trying harder to bring them in. A lot of the fault obviously lies with the countries themselves, which have not done the reforms that the EU asked them to do, but generally quite badly run places. And I think the feeling in countries, so particularly Germany, is that if you let in Ukraine and Moldova, you can't leave the Western Balkans out in the cold to succumb to the influence of Russia, China and Turkey, whose influence in the Western Balkans is growing. So the bandwagon therefore consists of six Western Balkan countries who are in various states of readiness for enlargement, none of them very ready. And Ukraine and Moldova, which are not ready either, but have a much stronger desire to move closer to the EU and are more enthusiastic probably than the Western Balkans countries. And we see a process emerging. I think in October, the European Commission will produce a report, probably suggesting the starting of accession talks with Ukraine and Moldova. And that decision could be taken perhaps at the end of the year. And I think the council will agree to start accession talks with those two countries, but only if all 27 member states agree to a parallel process of assessing the EU's absorption capacity, because, of course, enlarging the EU isn't a simple thing to do, and it won't work, many countries believe, unless you also reform things like the voting rules, rules and numbers of commissioners, and the common agricultural policy and the structural fund. So that's the process building up. 
what is key to this process is I think that France and Germany, who have not been enthusiastic for enlargement in the past, particularly France, now seem to be genuinely committed to it in a way they haven't been before for geostrategic reasons. So that's why I think that probably things will move forward. There's a real momentum building up. And once the EU starts to move in a certain direction, it's quite hard to stop it. But of course, many things can stop it, which we'll come on to discuss. But I would guess the earliest these countries could join the EU, that is Ukraine, Moldova, and some of the Western Balkans could be in roughly 10 years from now. Mm. So, Heather, do you agree with Charles? Do you think that member states are actually honest when they say they want enlargement? And he said it's quite the turnaround from France and others. And do you think Ukraine would join before the Western Balkans, for example? You have extensive experience with the Western Balkans. I agree with Charles about the short-term outlook, but I think the medium term is a bit more complicated. The way to think about enlargement policy on the EU side is it's a tug of war always between geopolitical considerations, which at the moment are pushing very strongly in favour of a rapid move forward and very strong signals of support to Ukraine in particular. And on the other side, pulling in the other direction are all of the member states' concerns about what impact will it have on their own interests, what kind of EU they would like to be members of, how it affects their agricultural subsidies and other receipts from the EU budget, how it affects their institutional position, how it also affects their economies. And those are more subtle and more complicated matters, which some of the governments are still trying to work out what their interests really are. They're still trying to look at, do their calculations of what kind of impact Ukraine might have on on the EU's policies, budget and institutions, but also on its single market and on their own economies. So as a result of that, what you see at the moment is very strong rhetorical support from France in particular, and that's the big turnaround. That's the thing that's never been there before in the whole history of enlargement. France has always been the most reluctant, right from Charles de Gaulle refusing Britain's accession long ago, right through until the 2004 enlargement. And so France making a big push for Ukraine on geopolitical grounds is what has moved the tug of war in that direction and away from all of the, as it were, lesser but still important domestic concerns of many of the member states. So I think what will happen is in the short term, that geopolitical momentum will drive more commitments to Ukraine than the EU has been willing to make to the Western Balkan countries. And I think that it's likely there will be a big push to actually set a date for starting accession negotiations. But once those negotiations get underway, then we'll see the pull back in the other direction as member states start to grumble about Ukraine needs to do more on this, that and the other. Particularly, they will be pushing for more on corruption and good governance. They'll be wanting to see quite a lot of changes, I think, to the way Ukraine organizes its state, as well as preparations to join the acquis communautaire, which is a very big task. It's hundreds of thousands of pages of legislation that will be a need to be adopted by the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada, and a lot of reforms that will be difficult, really very challenging to do during wartime. But I feel quite confident that Ukraine has the will to do it. And the incredibly impressive pace of reforms made during the war and the massive transformation of the Ukrainian state that is going on against all the odds actually make it quite likely that Ukraine will start to meet the conditions faster than some of the EU member states would like. The problem is that the Western Balkan countries, and I would distinguish between them a bit more than Charles did, but I think Serbia in particular may actually falter and move further behind. And that will make it difficult to keep countries together. And I think the EU will face major dilemmas over the years ahead about how many countries to try to bunch together in the next enlargement. And we may well see the different Balkan countries being divided up because some are much more willing and able to make reforms than others.
we are now focusing a lot on reforms in the candidate countries, which makes sense. But one of the main things that Charles mentioned at the beginning is this idea that in order for the European Union to absorb more countries, the EU needs to reform itself from the insides. So this idea that enlargement has to follow a twin track process by which you both start accession negotiations with countries, but also start thinking about what to do about your own. Let me go back to Heather for a second and then I bring Charles in the conversation again. Heather, you were there at the center of the action when the newer member states are joined in 2004. You worked for enlargement commissioner Oli Rem back then not only on the Western Balkans, but also on enlargement to other places itself. So does this idea that the European Union needs to reform make sense to you on the basis of your experience? Right now, we see a lot of attention to the question of the EU's absorption capacity, as it's called, for new members. And typically, this always happens when new enlargements are mooted. And there are usually lots of grand statements about the EU must deepen before it can widen. This is the golden opportunity to make lots of reforms that we haven't been able to agree before. And indeed, some of those things may become conditions for further enlargement. Those are the claims that are usually made. But historically, they rarely stood up to the test of time. Historically, institutional reform has usually become a red herring because the immediate decisions about when, under what conditions a country should start negotiations for accession, those have to be made earlier and then institutional reform attempts continue in parallel. And they may or may not succeed. They didn't succeed before the 2004 enlargement because the constitutional treaty actually failed in referendum in France and other countries. And in fact, there's usually been a quite large scale of retrofitting, of deepening after enlargement, as the new challenges raised by the new members become clear, and also as the member states finally start to grasp the nettles that they've assiduously avoided before. I suspect something similar will happen this time too. I doubt the EU is going to undertake a whole-scale institutional reform before new members join. Some of the changes that can be made under the existing treaties, under the Passerelle, for example, on qualified majority voting, for example, in foreign and security policies, they may well happen. Much harder is the issue of majority voting on taxation, for example. And also, what's very difficult always is the question of votes in the council and how to divide them up. But typically, those kinds of things, and also reforms to the EU budget, happen very shortly before the enlargement, because it's only under the pressure of an impending enlargement when decisions happen to be made, that heads of state and government are finally willing to knuckle down and at midnight come up with a compromise. They're very reluctant to do that in anticipation. They usually underact that under that kind of emergency. What will be most difficult for Ukraine, I think, is going to be reform of the common agricultural policy, which will be needed because Ukraine's agricultural sector is large. But that kind of reform is desperately needed anyway, because the current CAP is so damaging for the environment and also absorbs such a huge proportion of the EU budgets that that money needs to be freed up for lots of other digital and climate policies. That will only really happen once the member states feel under enormous pressures because the entrenched interests in the existing policy are still very strong. Charles, do you agree with that? Do you agree that reforms will only happen... I broadly agree with what Heather has said, Camila. I mean, I do think that on the one hand, it is easy to wring your hands and say enlargement will never happen because both French and German ministers have said at various points, we can't have enlargement without majority voting on taxation and foreign policy. And if you talk to the government's do they want majority voting on taxation and foreign policy? At least half the member states don't want one or the other. So it, it will be very difficult. But I think 
I'm more optimistic than what I've just said might lead you to believe, because I think there's always ways of getting around institutional problems. Talking to a number of people in Brussels recently on, say, take QMV and foreign policy, there's all sorts of clever ideas floating around in the either in Brussels. You know, the existing treaty do actually permit the use of majority voting on implementation measures if you agree unanimously to allow that. There's talk of more emergency breaks. So if a country feels its vital interests are under threat, it can pull a break. So the matter is referred up to the European Council. There's the so-called Yonanina compromise, which allows decisions to be delayed. We could bring that back in. There's talk of using enhanced cooperation or other sorts of variable geometry to sort out problems on majority voting. So I think on the majority voting, the truth is a lot of the countries which say they want QMV on, say, tax, don't really believe it. They're saying that to sound good. Talking to one federalist government recent, one of the most always in favour of, in theory, of QMV and everything, a person I was speaking to admitted to me, actually, we don't really want it, we just say we want it. I think that won't be so difficult. As Heather rightly says, the more difficult issue is probably how to reform the budget. But as Heather said, this will be left to the last minute. Again, there are ways around it. If you phase in the payments to a country like Ukraine very, very slowly over very many years, over decades, which is what has happened to Poland since it joined in 2004, then the problem becomes less acute. And regional funds, again, you might be completely changed. There's some talk in Brussels of making the regional funds conditional on reform, rather like the recovery and resilience facility has been. So a different kind of regional fund to enforce the country's concern to carry out reforms that you would like them to carry out. Another point to make is that I think because the enlargement process is so slow these days, and it's not going to speed up very much, I don't think, there's quite a lot of talk that you should let countries into aspects of the single market and certain EU policies before they become full members with voting rights. And certainly, I gather that some of the Western Balkans prime ministers have actually said they'd be quite happily join parts of the EU in the near or medium term without having full voting rights so that they can get some real benefits delivered to their voters from the EU. So I think there are institutional fudges and ways around these difficulties on the voting rules and the budget. So I think it need not be a break to the enlargement process. But of course, let's not forget that every bit of the enlargement process depends on unanimity approving each step forward. So if one country, say Hungary, wants to be difficult, it can actually put a spanner in the works. I should just mention in response to that, Charles, you're right, that innovation is very likely to emerge in this enlargement round. We'll see things that we've never seen before in enlargement policy, partly to overcome this problem of the, each and every one of the 27 member states has several hundred veto points in the accession process. So one way of overcoming the problem on the budget is just to put Ukraine completely off budget, because not only do member states wish to keep their existing receipts, and once you open the budget, it's a Pandora's box, there are all kinds of issues that come out. But but also, of course, Ukraine's reconstruction needs are going to be absolutely enormous. The current estimate is $411 billion over the next decade. So there will be some kind of major multinational, multilateral fund from the international financial institutions, the US and others, as well as the EU probably providing about half of it. And so that could be completely outside the EU budget and funded through new mechanisms. Ursula von der Leyen has even talked about using borrowing at EU level to do that. So what we could see is a completely innovative way of financing Ukraine's reconstruction and therefore also a lot of its integration costs into the EU if as Charles says, there's progressive integration into EU policies long before membership, which is another key innovation. Partly offered to the Balkans, we made some progress in reforming the enlargement process to allow them to have, for example, visa-free access to the EU and joining of some EU policies. That could go a lot further. And that's where most of the innovation will happen under the next enlargement commissioner starting next year to bring Ukraine into many aspects of the single market. Also Moldova, which has proved itself willing and able to do complicated things like joining the energy grid. So Ukraine and Moldova 
over becoming part of the EU's energy infrastructure and then starting to provide green energy and therefore becoming part of the Green Deal could be very good ways of bringing them into policies in a way that never happened before accession before. And of course, Ukrainians currently have full access to the EU labour market under the Temporary Protection Directive. So there are a lot of new things that could happen now, which would ease the transition because by the time Ukraine finishes the long and unfortunately rather slow period of accession negotiations, it could actually already be in a lot of the EU and some of the very contentious issues could already be off the table. I guess one problem with that, Heather, with that idea, if you put Ukraine off budgets, you might need to put the Western Balkans and others off budget as well. And then everybody gets placed somewhere else outside of the contentious negotiations, since we know that many member states do not want Ukraine to join before the Western Balkans do. And we know that many member states are not willing to make a huge exception for Ukraine when it comes to the proper enlargement process. So I guess that that would be one problem. Mine doesn't seem to be a very popular view amongst member states, most of which say that they do not want to have treaty change since it will be indeed so complicated with referendums and other things. Charles, I think you are much more of the view that treaty change is not on the table, are you? Well, I have a slightly different take from you, Camino. I hear you You say that you think as people consider the implications of enlargement, they want to change the treaties. I'm rather sceptical. I think that most governments I talk to are quite allergic to the concept of treaty change. The last time there was a big treaty change, which led to the Lisbon Treaty, the whole process took about almost 10 years from a convention on the future of Europe to an intergovernmental conference, to referendums that were rejected in countries like the Netherlands and Ireland, and then a new treaty being drafted, which became the Lisbon Treaty, then ratification problems with that. So I think there's a strong desire to avoid a big rewrite of the treaties, because that would almost certainly require referendums in several countries. And we all know that some of the referendums are likely to go, as it were, the wrong way. So that's one reason why I don't think there's going to be a treaty change. I think most governments don't want it. Now, there are exceptions. Some people in the French government talk about treaty change, and the Dutch government too. So I agree there are some people take your view, but the overwhelming majority would want to avoid a treaty change, I think, just because it's such a lot of hassle and bother. And the second reason why I think they avoid a treaty change is because a lot of governments believe the Lisbon Treaty can cope with a much bigger EU, maybe up to 35 members. I mean, the basic qualified majority voting rule that a measure passes if 55% of the member states representing 65% of the EU's population are in favour would still work with 34 members as it works with 27 members. And the numbers of commissioners is a little bit of a bother for some people. If you have six Balkan commissioners coming in into the current system, each with their own cabinet, it's rather expensive. But as somebody said to me last week, there are always small jobs you can find for them to do in the European Commission. So I think I don't see a fundamental problem as to why the Lisbon Treaty cannot accommodate a much larger EU. And you can make small reforms on the sides, as we've discussed, maybe the passerelle clauses, so-called, can be used to extend majority voting in certain areas. Maybe other little reforms can be done, like some things have been done outside the treaties, like the European Stability Mechanism, the bailout fund was established outside the main treaties. You can do things outside the treaties if you have to with a new mini-treaty. But I don't see a major rewrite of the treaties being on the cards, because it would just be a nightmare for most governments, as far as I can see. Yeah, I agree with Charles. I think I can't see why the EU would ever have another treaty. It's so risky. And every time you open the treaties, then lots of member states ask for things that others want to have off the table. It's very unpredictable once it's opened how many new issues will emerge. And given all of the problems with rule of law, for example, and with a couple of member states really blocking a huge range of things, the risk of even more issues being taken hostage is very high. There's a lot that can be done to the existing treaties. Just one figure I would give you is if you add up the populations of 
Ukraine, Moldova, even Georgia, plus all of the Western Balkan countries, the total population is basically about the same as that of the UK. So the EU28 had a population basically the same size as what it would have if all of the countries currently considered for enlargement joined. So in terms of numbers of MEPs and those kinds of population-based issues, you'd be filling the UK-shaped hole that was left after Brexit. Now, of course, these are all individual countries, many of them small. So the issue is more, as Charles says, finding jobs for for very junior commissioners and how to weight the votes in the council. But these are things that can be decided quite quickly. They're complex, they matter to member states, but they're not things that take years and years to implement. What does take a very long time and where I think the EU won't give a free ride or any kind of shortcut to Ukraine is on meeting the norms and standards under the acquis communautaire, under those hundreds of thousands of pages of EU legislation. Not only will Ukraine have to write those international law, but it will actually have to implement them, which is an expensive and very time-consuming business. And that's why I think that the accession negotiations could still take quite a long time, even for a wealthy and super well-organized country like Iceland or indeed Norway, it would still take quite a few years simply to go through that process. And for Ukraine, which is fighting a war and trying to reform its state administration at the same time, that's an enormous challenge. I think Ukrainians are absolutely up to it because of the extraordinary degree of mobilization of the whole of society around these kinds of national efforts. But that's why I think there's still quite a long time when there will be discussion about institutional reform, but the deals won't be done until the last minute. Thanks so much for that. I still think that at some points we'll need to have a conversation inside the Union about what kind of club do we want to be. And this is not only about enlargement. I've been saying this for a long time, also because of problems with the rule of law and other sort of questions related to other parts of EU policy, where we haven't done a proper rethinking of what is it that we want to be when we grow up since before the previous enlargement. And in the same way that we've heard so many officials telling us we don't believe treaty change will happen because it's so complicated. And it is very complicated. I also very recently heard somebody saying that the biggest mistake the European Union did, referring to the rule of law crisis and other veto problems with Hungary, Poland, and etc., was to have done the previous big bang enlargements 2004 without having gone through any sort of treaty change, but not fundamentally think okay, what is it that we're doing moving forward? And I think it's going to become much more apparent as we move forward. And it's going to become much more of a question mark for any governments if Ukraine, Moldova, and possibly Georgia join. But this is my view. So I'm happy to disagree. This way we have some sort of uh, debates on the podcast as well. My last question for you, Heather and Charles, it's an easy one. What do you think the European Union will look like in 2035? Will there be many more member states in? Will the UK be there? Will we have a new treaty? I think there will be quite a a few new members. I think Ukraine will be there. Definitely North Macedonia, Montenegro, Albania, quite a lot of the Western Balkans. I think the big question with the Western Balkans is whether Serbia will actually choose to join the EU by that point, given the political influences in the country. I would like to see it there, but there are some big challenges about the direction that the country's government is taking to overcome. I definitely would like to see Moldova a part of the EU then. And indeed, Georgia, again, if the reforms and the orientation towards Europe can be maintained under governments until that point. So an enlarger EU to be kind of fit for 35, as it were, it actually has a lot of advantages because it's an EU that would have a greater weight in the world. It would have a more more Eastern 
aspect to it in terms of, of where it sits on the map. But I think it would actually create a stronger European identity because it would be a more diverse European identity, one that can also embrace more of the countries all the way halfway across the Black Sea. That's a very good thing. What it will need to do is to also adapt to really major changes in the world. And I think those are the things that we need to focus on. There's a huge amount of focus on parochial concerns about, oh, what happens to receipts from the budget? And, oh, you know, is it possible to, to think about an EU that stretches all the way across the Dniester? But in fact, the world is changing so rapidly that having a larger EU with more geopolitical as well as more economic weight and one that has adapted to a much more digital world, to a world where climate change is radically changed, the physical landscape of Europe. Having more members is going to be a good thing. It's still difficult to push that idea in a lot of member states, but the geopolitical pressure that's now there on the EU should help, I think, to overcome some of those concerns. In the tug of war I was talking about earlier, the geopolitical pull towards enlargement is not going to let up over the next year. I would agree with most of that from Heather. I won't, don't have a lot to add, really. I do think enlargement will happen. I think there'll be a number of countries in the EU in 12 years' time who aren't there today. I think I'm a bit more optimistic about Serbia. I think Serbia could be one of them alongside some others in the Western Balkans and Ukraine and Moldova. I think there's going to be a lot more so-called variable geometry, which Mr. Macron's very keen on. He won't be around, of course, then, but others will be around to push this idea. The, the idea that not every country is in every part of the EU. Some countries will be in bits of the EU. I think the division between what counts as membership and what counts as not membership will be much more blurred than it is today. About 15 years ago, I wrote a little book called Europe's Blurred Boundaries. And I think the boundaries between the European Union and non-EU are going to be much more blurred than they are today. I think the EU budget will be bigger in the long run. I think European defence policy will be much more solid and more vigorous than it is today. And I think the British, they won't be back in the EU, but they will have a bespoke relationship with the EU that is much closer than that negotiated by Boris Johnson's government. I think in economic terms, we'll be perhaps looking to something a little bit like the deal that Theresa May tried to negotiate with the EU in the customs union in the single market for goods, but not the single market for services, a much closer economic relationship. And I think the British will be absolutely part of and even helping to lead the new European defence organisation that's going to emerge to give Europe more clout in the world. That's my optimistic prediction. Thank you, Charles, Heather. And let's finish on that very optimistic note. This has been a really fascinating discussion. Let's see what happens in coming months, in coming years. And thank you all for listening to the CR podcast. You can listen to all our episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.